When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you want people to bring all of their passion and their energy and themselves to work, then they're going to care deeply about it. And I think that that's what you want out of your people. And what comes along with that are emotions. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. All right, welcome to season nine, episode two of Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. So glad you're here. I am jazzed and excited to introduce you to our guests today. You know, I know that you're listening to this show because, well, Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, you're all about human-centered leadership or you wouldn't be listening. And our guest today, I don't think could have a more human-centered focus to their leadership if they tried. The title of their book, that we're gonna be talking about today is Humanity Works Better. Five Practices to Lead with Awareness, Choice, and the Courage to Change. And I'm very excited to introduce them to you. Uh, Our guests are, they work with leaders and organizations to build stronger relationships, authentic connections, and better results. They're master leadership coaches, have backgrounds in executive uh, human resource leadership at companies like Time Warner, Razorfish, Mozilla, and tons more clients like Pinterest, Adobe, DaVita, uh, United Way, and many more. And so I am so excited to introduce you to our guests, Debbie Cohen and Kate Reske Zoomer. Kate, Debbie, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thanks, David. Thanks. Super happy to be yeah. here. Yeah. Uh, I am excited that you're here and I can't wait to dive into your book. But before we do, got to ask you this question. I'd like each of you, if you could, to take us back to your earliest memory of yourself as a leader. So I'll go. The year was 1970, well, now maybe early 80s. Um, And I'd spent the first part of my career working with young children at a co-op at Stanford University. And late one night, I got a call from the board that the executive director had been dismissed and they'd like me to step in as the interim leader. So the center had about 250 parents, co-op, so very engaged. They'd been on the Stanford campus for 25 years, so very entrenched into the university. And I was 28 years old. And things that I learned there was um, not to be afraid to step into what was scary. Uh, There was a lot of mistrust happening. And so I partnered with the person I least trusted and said, I need you to help me figure out how do we repair trust in this place? And Mm. it has to start with you and I working together and showing the way. I had a great mentor who said to me, you want to spend your time in fire prevention, not fighting fires, which was sort of the earliest thinking to the work Kate and I now do about outcome creating, right? What are you trying to create? Like, put your attention there instead of reacting to all the nonsense that comes up. 
not that you don't have to do that sometimes. And it was a formative experience that really shaped the rest of my leadership trajectory, but that was the first. Oh, thank you, Debbie. I, I love that. Yeah, fire prevention versus firefighting. And then the other thing that you said that, that really hit me was stepping into the scary. And I was just, I'm just was working with an executive earlier today and having that conversation as a very senior person who is looking at taking that next step in some of their effectiveness. And if you scrape away everything else, yeah, there's some fear there. And when we don't step into the scary, we're not growing, are we? I remember calling my best friend and saying, oh my God, they're hiring me for this job. And she's like, you know, pull your pants up, get in there. Like, you know how to do this, like go figure it out. And I was like, no, I think that's sort of how leadership is. You just pull your pants up every day and head in there and figure out how to make it happen. And you got to figure it out. We don't have it figured out ahead of time. All right. Over to you, Kate. Earliest memory of yourself as a leader. Yeah, I think earliest memory was I had gotten promoted. Um, I started out in the advertising industry and I had gotten promoted, I think maybe about a year too soon into this job. It was uh, a big account and, and I went to the very first meeting and I thought, I'm just going to get to sit back and listen and sort of get the lay of the land. You know, I'm not, it's not a high stakes meeting for me. I'm brand new. And we had the head of the New York account. We had my boss, we had the head of creative at this meeting and they were presenting creative work that I hadn't even seen. I don't think prior to the meeting, And the, the lead client turned to me and said, Kate, what do you think? <laughs> I just remember thinking, gulp. <laughs> I have no idea. But words just came out of my mouth and I was I was honest and authentic about what I thought and what I didn't know and some, you know, things. And I remember going back to uh, the agency and being in my my boss's office and I said that was such a weird moment for me. And Cynthia was my oh, we're still good friends to this day. And I said, it was such a weird moment for me because I didn't know like what to say. So words just started coming out of my mouth and she turned to me and she said, you know what, Kate, we're all just, we're all just making this up. There's, there's, and, and there's this imposter syndrome that I think happens for a lot of leaders. And Deb and I talk about this on a really regular basis with our own clients. There is this belief that somebody else knows more than you do. And I think the that's why it came up as the first leadership moment. It was, huh, well, if they don't know, then my ideas are probably just as good as their ideas, right? And it really gave me some independence and, and really gave me some courage to actually just start sharing what I thought from a really common sense, natural way moving forward. Oh, I can see why you two work together and would would co-author a book. There, I mean, the alignment in some of those early leadership experiences of, yeah, I don't know this. I've got to figure it out and let's see what happens. And yeah. just, I love that, the humility and all that. We talk a lot over here about confidence and humility and, mm -hmm. and the both and in the middle of all of that. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so human, which is a great, you know, way to segue into why you wrote humanity works better. And I, I'm curious about this from a, an author perspective. I, you know, I've written several books and the genesis that the reason that every one of those books exists is different. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious for you, how did this book come to be? From my 
point of view, I had been doing this leadership work. Debbie was one of my very biggest and earliest clients. And we tried a whole bunch of things together, not knowing if it was going to work. <laughs> and it did in Silicon Valley of all places with a, shall we say, a somewhat cynical audience, right? These, these are they do not suffer fools lightly. And, and part of what we, and I've been doing this work for 15 years and seeing so many of these concepts that we brought into places to help people work better together, to work better together, human to human. And people couldn't wait to get back into the training rooms that we were doing this work in. And I had always thought, there's a, there's an idea here. There's that we need to get more people to be more human with each other through, these are not complicated skills or practices, but we need to get them out. I want to get this out there in the world in a way that is more accessible to, to more people. And for me, complimenting on what Kate was doing, my motivation, slightly different, but aligned, which was, um, I'd been inside organizations for about 25 years in the HR leadership space. And part of what caught my attention was how darn hard it was to get stuff done. And we'd been through all of the process re-engineering, let's get really efficient. We'd been through that phase of, well, geez, now that we've got created efficiency, let's ask fewer people to do more. Uh, and we watched the effect of that inside organizations, which is typically bad behavior, toxic behavior, lots of research in the book on bullying effects and microaggressions and a lot of the things that we know limit the effectiveness of an organization and the humans that are part of it. And so Part of the work that Kate and I did together at Mozilla was looking at where high leverage places, where's the pain hard in the organization? And if we go in and touch them there, what happens to the ripple effect? Where, where does things start happen? Because they show up differently to people above them and they cascade what they're learning into the people that work for them. And so as we were writing the book, I'm thinking about, well, geez, how do we change the world of work by bringing more humanity to it? Part of my lens was what's our high leverage place? What's the high leverage place where humanity works to write a book? And for me, it became a foundational element. Every, everybody can have this book. Everybody can learn these five practical, approachable skills to be better humans. And we wrote the book aimed at you, the individual. And yes, the individual, if you're sitting in a leadership role, but you, the individual leading your life. These are things if you do and you start to change, the people around you will do and start to change. Because, because one of the things that happens in organizations, I think, is people feel unempowered. And it's so easy to deflect the problem. Well, if I just had a boss that was you know, behave better, wasn't so mean. It's, it's so easy. And we've seen this and we've seen it from two different perspectives. Deb from within the organization, me coming in as a consultant, trainer and coach outside of the organization. And we wrote this book, as Deb just said, just a minute ago, to be for you, 
you actually, the only thing you have control over is you. I can't change him or her over there. The only thing I can change is myself. And one of the things that we see time and time again is if you change, you actually start to see changes in the dynamics and the group behaviors around you. So interesting. You're, the ramifications for what you're talking about go far beyond even just the workplace, right? I mean, they're showing up as a human being and bringing out the humanity in other people. It works better, not just at work, it works better in life everywhere, doesn't it? We've had people bring their spouses at the end of trainings and they're like, we just want to introduce you because this is the person who changed how I'm showing up at home. And the, and those partners be like, oh, thank you so much, right? <laughs> like, you're right, with your kids, with your partners, you know, people, this book is coming out just before Thanksgiving, that time when we come together with all those loved ones. There's some tips in here for everybody. You, you, it would be a fun party game. Let's read Humanity <laughs> Works and practice the, practice the tips. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's let's dive in here a little bit. So we've set the stage for why this is such an important work, and it, and it truly is. Humanity works better. Uh, you've you've split the book into two parts, and and really the first part is where you were starting to go, which is where better work begins. Mm -hmm. And and for the sake of our discussion, we'll let's focus in on the workplace because that's everybody's listening today coming from that perspective. And you say in that section, if things are not quite right in your workplace, the real change starts with you. Expand, elaborate. Yeah. I'll start on that one a little bit. So as the behaviorist, right, we look a lot about at culture. People are like, culture, culture is the HR person. Like you own culture. I'm like, I don't own culture. Culture is already here. Culture is in the DNA of this organization. So what's here? one. And the other is this belief that, you know, from my perspective, I think our perspective is that culture is the collection of the behaviors of the people in your organization. That's what makes your culture. That's it. So if those behaviors are not quite right, if that's not what you want, then the first person to start shifting their behavior is you. Yeah. There's a very strong belief that rather than play the victim, rather than play, dare we say it, the martyr, right? Of, oh, I just have, the truth of the matter is nobody is forcing you to stay anywhere, right? But the thing you, before you leave and just go do the exact same thing someplace else, that's why we, we say that it takes courage to change. It takes courage to sort of do that inventory on yourself. What behaviors are you using that are working for you? And what behaviors are not working for you? And start there. Like we have these five practices and embedded in those five practices are five skills that you can use in any one of those five practices. Some of them may come really naturally to people, but some of them might be a little stretch for you. So just pick one and try it. Because if you try and if you begin to show up differently, you know, you're going to, you're going to shift the dynamic in the, in, in the little part of the world that you have some agency over. And that's where we're, that's where, you know, Deb and I believe in this came from Henry Kimsey house, who's one of our mentors, who's the founder of the CTI, the coaches training Institute. And one time we were having a conversation with him and I said, you know, do you think you can change an organization? He said, no, I don't, but I think I can change you 
and you and you. And then that starts to change to Deb's point, the culture or the actual organization. But it's it takes some courage to do that. We're in a training right now with a group of senior leaders. And one of the components is around a compelling self. Who are you as your most compelling? And somebody said to us, why do I need to be compelling? Oh, I love it. Why do I need to be compelling? We love those kind of questions, by the way, right? And one of the things that came up for me that I shared with them is as you grow in your leadership um, stature, what happens is you spend less and less time in relationship with the people that you are leading. And so being very self-aware about who you want to be and how you are being, because you are now telegraphing one to many, and you are responsible for the impact that you are creating out there. If you are not conscious about who you are wanting to be and how you are impacting others, you can be telling a story in your head that you've got this all together and be completely blind to the fact that you're intimidating people or off-putting or leaving people behind in your, in your grand vision. Um, and that actually compromises the effectiveness of your leadership. Absolutely. So, so part of where we go in the book in our five practices, creating safety is actually how you get to trust. And the skill that we offer there is listening, not active listening, which most of us know, but that there are actually three different levels that you can listen at. And information is being telegraphed to you all the time in those different levels of listening. The next practice we offer is working together. And we talk a lot and we've all read those books about collaboration and how important collaboration is. But if you don't actually know how to become collaborative, then those are just buzzy, buzzy words that we throw out without shared meaning or understanding of them. So there the practice is around getting to stepping toward and seeking to understand the perspective of other people as a way of getting into a greater uh, give and take and collaboration in the way work is happening. The next one I think is really related to um, really the title of your podcast, David, you know, I mean, I just love the title of your podcast. I have to say like, who doesn't want to, you know, step into leadership without losing your soul. But, you know, Deb and I talk about this a lot. I think there's so many people that don't know what is important to them. Right. And so we have the, the third practice is claiming value and, and, and you need to know what is important to you. So when those sticky, toxic, unhealthy, whatever you want to call it, situations happen to you and they do happen to us in life and in work, right? And you you know what's important to you. It's a lot easier to sort of connect that alignment, you know, and and to actually acknowledge, hey, this is what's important to me. This These are my boundaries. This is what is okay. This is what's not okay. And what I love about that particular chapter, especially for the leadership perspective is, you know, buzzwords of alignment are out there all over the place, but I don't know how you can align an organization if you're not aligned yourself. It always starts with you. Always. And, and understanding who you are, what's important to you, how that shows up in your words and your behavior, the continuity of your character is, is a tremendous component to staying aligned as a leader to where, how you are being when you are leading people forward. Yeah. 
All right. So we've covered the first three practices there. Why don't you introduce us to number four and five? And then I want to take us back to uh, Debbie, something that you said early on as you were talking about, it starts with you. So let's go to four and five and then we'll, we'll dive, dive a little deeper. Great. So f- go, ahead, go ahead, Kate. Okay. Owning your, owning your impact is the, is the fourth practice. You got to own your impact. We, we love this concept that you are having an intended impact. This is what, how you mean to come across. And you know what? The unintended impact is happening all the time. One you have control over, one you have no control over, which can be challenging. So the practice actually helps you to become aware of how ex- people experience you and what makes you compelling. And we, we firmly put the responsibility on you for what you create. And unfortunately, you can't open up a paper these days. I guess we don't open up papers anymore. You can't open up your CNN app anymore or whatever you read. And without reading about the unintended impact that a lot of these C-suite people make on the organization, and we write about this in the book, right? You know, it's that me too. It's the CEOs, these leaders who are creating the impact that actually create more trouble for the organization. And so this is a place to look, to get conscious. Who are you? How are you showing up? And what does that look like? Because it's up to you to be responsible for what you create. And then Kate's favorite chapter. Yeah, this is my favorite. Uh, It's called Dare Not to Know. This is probably one of the biggest leadership myths that if we can change, we want to do it which is that belief that you have to know everything. You simply cannot. One of my favorite writers on this topic is Kevin Cashman. Um, And he writes about the fact that we all know there's stuff out there that we don't know anything about. And we know there's stuff that we don't know anything about that we don't know anything about, right? And and he talks about how that the world is filled with that and our internal world is just as vast. And so this practice is really about what, what does it look like, not to the point of being inept, but what does it look like to say to your team who you have hired most likely into those positions and say, gosh, I've got this problem and I don't know how to solve it. It's that we call it, we say it's, this is a practice of surrender. And when you actually have the courage to say that, people will step forward. They will step towards you. And we yeah. think, yeah, we think it's one of the strongest, you know, sort of you lead the way in terms of what does it look like to stand and say, I don't know, and watch people step towards you. I can't even like count how many coaching conversations Kate and I've had with leaders that are like, I can't just say, I don't know. And they're like, so how do I do that? How do I do that without saying, I don't know? And the skill that we offer in this one is the power of curiosity. Yeah. Right. It's one thing to say like, Hey, I don't know, David, what's your thoughts on this big, hairy, scary problem that we have to, you know, what are you thinking about over there without saying, like, imagine, I, imagine that your team has some thoughts that might just be really valuable right? on that particular thoughtful, thing. diverse, alternative perspectives that might light something up for you that helps you connect the dots Absolutely. in a different kind of way. All right. So thank you. We've got the overview of the five practices, starting with grounding in the fact that as leaders and as human beings, if something's not quite right, the only person we can start with is ourselves. And, you know, as you were talking about that, uh, Debbie, you were reminding me 
uh, read a blog post from Seth Godin. I think it was today's post that he he sent out today. But he was talking about the, and I don't remember Kate or Debbie, which of you said it, but there's that tendency to feel disempowered in organizations because organizations are big. And even if it's 50 people, that's small for an organization, but that's still, you're one person in 50. And wherever you are, that can feel challenging to say, well, what power do I have here? And even more so as a member of a society or a country or the global population, right? What power do I have? And that power that you're talking about is real. And I, I want to come back to that because it's not fluffy theory. It's not a nice, oh yeah, okay, it starts with me. It only takes a spark, right? Okay, yes, but the power, the influence that your behavior has is a very real thing. And so I wanted to highlight that, that, that you had said, and Seth was talking about it in terms of, you know, if you're vegetarian and you choose to go to a restaurant and say, hey, what are your vegetarian options? That's just you trying to eat your dinner, but it influences the restaurant to maybe have more of those options in the future. Mm-hmm. And then that makes somebody else who's interested in those options be able to, and, and it compounds. And that's what you were talking about is the compounding effect of our behaviors and not to underestimate those, the power of the choices that we make. So you take us then to resistance, talking about what gets in our way. And you have a, a section in the book that I, I think is really important for, for people, for leaders in particular, about navigating resistance. And you talk about three fears that are very common um, that can come up. And I'd love for you to, to expand on that for, for our audience a little bit. I have like so many ideas running through my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. So the three fears that we we talk about is the fear of not being good enough, uh, the fear of not knowing enough, and the fear third, of failure. The fear of failure, right? Those are those are just the those are the heavy hitters. <laughs> this is saboteur work. This if is we were, if we were doing a word cloud of fears that keep us. That's those yeah. are big ones in the word. But cloud. they're the big ones, and they're directly related to fight flight and freeze where you go under duress. That's right. It's, it's the amygdala hijack. I'm sure you all know about that. It's that place when, oh my God, you know, the freeze, uh, is where, uh, compliers go. That's the, I'm not good enough that somebody else is the protectors. They're the ones that will flight. So they're the ones that are like, I'm out of here mentally, emotionally, they're going to get distance. Yeah, they're going to create that distance. They're going to get critical and arrogant. Just two different, two different other ways of creating distance, right? And then, of course, the controllers are like, "I'm going to get in there. I'm going to prove you. I'm going to fight." Right? When we do this work with senior executives and sort of uh, C-suite on down, we do this work with people because getting to know yourself and where you go is super important. Because that stuff is going on sort of underneath the surface. And therefore, we're just reacting without even thinking about it. We're not conscious of it. And what of, we're, yeah, we're all about making people more conscious. Part of what we underscore in resistance, and when you see it in your organizations, when you feel it in yourself, when you see it in people who work for you, uh, resistance always sits in fear. And so to Kate's point, these are the three big buckets, right? And if you can 
pause and get curious about what's underneath the resistance and understand the fear, then you have a place to move forward from. Um, and that's about, you know, we were talking, you're saying a training about pushing people or pulling people. And when people understand their, what that resistance is about, you can be the wind under their wings to help lift them forward. Otherwise you're just trying to drag them forward. And that resistance just leaves skids marks all over, you know, as a leader, when I'm feeling that resistance, I'm thinking of a senior leader that I was having a, a conversation with recently, it was very self-aware and said, yeah, I'm, I'm having some fear here. I've never failed at anything in my life. And I'm afraid that in doing this, I might fail. Mm -hmm. Right. With great self-awareness had diagnosed like, oh yeah, this is what's going on. When I'm feeling something like that as a leader with regard to whatever that change is that I need to be embracing and starting with myself on, you, you mentioned getting curious. Can you take us a little to the next level of, as I'm seeing those, what is the curiosity? How do I want to, what can I do for myself? Going back to overcoming in my own and navigating my own resistance before I'm trying to help other people with theirs. Hmm. I love that question. So what comes up for me is get curious with yourself. How real is that fear? So this, we're, we're actually in the land of saboteurs, gremlins, inner critics. We're, we're in that territory. It's one of the most powerful things I think Deb and I do as coaches is you've got to get to know that. Because I love to say that saboteurs are, they're drama queens. <laughs> they, you know, chicken little, right? I'm dating myself with some of these, you know, with some of these analogies, but there is this part of that part of ourselves. And we talk about this all the time. They think that they are keeping us safe when in fact, they are just keeping us small. Mm. That's what's going on. So the place to get curious is, hang on a minute go there. What is that voice telling you? You know, what is the underlying message? What is the fear? And then when you go into it and get curious with yourself about what is going on, you can start to evaluate, is this a calculated choice? And I'm actually feeling really okay. I feel like I've got the right team in place. I feel like we've got the right support from upper level management, whatever, to be able to sort of take this risk. Or is that part of yourself trying to say, hang on a minute, you might not know everything. Mm. So the, the curiosity question there is, what is this resistance? What is this doing? How is this trying to keep me safe? Right. And, then, and then is it really, is it a warning? Is it a, a sign that I need to pay attention to something? Or is it an old pattern that maybe kept me safe in the past, but isn't right now? And I need to let that go and maybe try something else. That's exactly right. The other place my head goes, and again, this is all circumstantial, right? Is also, um, what would that be like? Mm. Right? What would it be like to really fail? If you've never done it before, what might that give you? What might it give you? What might it give other people? What's, it, ri what's it risk if you fail? Those are all curiosity questions that you could ask yourself or you know, get a good coach to help you with. But the, the fear of the failing is yes, embedded in some old limiting beliefs, but it's holding you back. 
And sometimes we need to fail because that's where we learn our biggest lessons. Mm. And if we just think we're always the superstar who always wins, what are you actually learning along the way? And is that fueling what's important to to you as a human and as a leader? Oh, this is so good. I knew it was going to be a good conversation. And I don't know about anybody else. I have gotten my money's worth already just in this in the questions that we're asking here. We haven't even got to the five practices yet. We're going to go deeper. We're going to get more. But wow, it's not keeping you safe. It's keeping you small. What's what's in that? What would failure do for you? What would it do for others? There's so many powerful questions that you just gave us. Very practical. We can take these, start using them right away. All right, so we're talking with Kate and Debbie here, the authors of Humanity Works Better. And we've been talking about how it starts with us, that the, the, the changes we wanna see happen in our organizations, they're our responsibility. They start with us because that's the thing we're most responsible for and spread from there. So we've overcome, we're navigating our resistances. Now let's get into these five practices. So just to review real quick, we've got creating safety, working together, claiming values, owning your impact and daring not to know which Kate, I'll give you that. That was probably my favorite of the five practices, at least by title. But I want to start with creating safety because you, and you mentioned it, Debbie, you gave us a description earlier and talking about building trust. And one of the things I particularly want to highlight is because I think in this day and age, there's a lot more around trust in the ether and in leadership spaces. And, you know, people are becoming more familiar with psychological safety and, and these concepts. And where the rubber meets the road, I, talking with leaders who are like, we are in some of the, the most unpredictable times that I've lived through. And so you say in the book, trust is reinforced through consistency and predictability, which 100% agree. And the question for you would be some environments and some work isn't consistent or predictable. How do you recommend leaders can help navigate that kind of a changing environment and still build and establish that trust with their teams? I love this question. So my lens tends to be whatever you think, think the opposite. Because the thing that is predictable and consistent in those organizations is change. That's what's consistent. That's what's predictable. So talk about how do we want to navigate through change. I was speaking on a panel at Berkeley and it was the height of the pandemic. And my heart just went out. There's a leader says, you know, my people are looking at me for clarity and direction and things just keep changing. Like I say this, and then it changes to that. And so he's like, what do I say? And I'm like, what do you say that is both true and honest? Tell them that lead from there. We are in unprecedented times. I can tell you what I know today. And my belief is it's going to change. So here's my encouragement to you, all of you, as we navigate through these unprecedented waters of change, keep your knees bent, stay agile, be kind with one another, whatever your messages are, give them that speak from your heart, be true and honest. But I'm like, nothing, nothing right now is predictable and dependable except change. And so mm. how do you lead through change? All right, I gotta highlight that one. Whatever you think, think the opposite. Turn it around <laughs> the other way. We were having a conversation the other day. I, actually, I was writing a, another article and um, 
you know, everybody's talking about turnover, 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 turnover. And I'm like, enough with turnover. There is less turnover than there is retention. So are you paying attention to the people who are there? Because if you don't, you're going to have more turnover. Oh, we're talking about turnover. Maybe you should be talking about how to increase tenure. What would happen if your tenure doubled? What kind of stability would that take? Instead of talking about your people as liabilities, what if you talked about them as an investment and look to double that investment? Whatever you think, think the opposite. Here, I had a bumper sticker for many, many years that I had on a, a, a notebook. Uh, and it said, don't believe everything you think. <laughs> I love that. You just reminded me of that, Debbie. Yeah, don't believe right. everything. That, whatever you think, think the opposite. Or question what you think, right? That's a great curiosity skill for a leader. Like what's causing me to think this? All right. So creating safety, let's move to working together. And I, I, you, uh, I think Kate, you had mentioned earlier the notion of outcome creating and you contrast outcome creating with problem reacting. And I love in the book, you, you tell one of the stories that you use is of a character, a person named uh, Ang or Anj, I'm not sure how you would pronounce the name, but it is a beautiful story that was so relatable about a team that had to be split up that he cared passionately about and how to navigate that. And so on this notion of creating outcomes versus reacting to problems and fire prevention versus firefighting and so forth, I, I would wonder if you could maybe explore that story or explore this notion with us a little bit. The idea of working together is that I, I get it. We live in in, in America, where you're always trying to sort of get to the next level, you're trying to promote yourself and get to that next level for, for a lot of leaders, not, not for all of them. And we can get very self-focused. But when you're working with other people, you actually need to get curious about what is out there, what is important to the other people or in this example, in this story that we shared in the book that actually happened with Deb, is this idea of um, what's important and what's the best in the best interest for the organization that hopefully you believe in their mission and driven and everything else, right? So in that case, it was a very, very real story of a, of a person who was really had worked so hard to build this incredible team and created amazing relationships. And then the team and then the company needed to move stuff around. And part of it was to give that person time to grieve the loss of this thing that he had built so beautifully, you know, so with a lot of humanity, right? And, and to give him time to sort of grieve. Yeah, this is hard. This is sad. And let's also look at this is also a huge testament to what you have built. And this is maybe better for the organization. It was also a great example of how your own perspective can limit you, right? When the person came to me, he was hurt and angry and believed this was the wrong decision. And so to Kate's point, there had to be time to grieve what was happening and then call him forward to how does he want to lead in a way that is true and honest to who he is, and he has a responsibility to the organization as well. So what's 
what's possible from that. And part of that was considering the decision might be the right one. And what's available to him and to the team if he stood in that perspective, or it might be the right one today, right? But we all know there's no permanence in most organizations, except maybe Sharpie. I don't know if things are permanent <laughs> there, but you know. Might've been the right one from the perspective of the people who with this set of values and this set of strategic outcomes, and this is what made sense. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that I, I love about that story and the reason I wanted to highlight it uh, in is because it captures the humanity that we're talking about and humanity works better. Here in a situation where somebody feels disempowered uh, and unseen, that it's not a matter of rebelling and fighting back and creating all this conflagration, but starting with the humanity. Let's grieve. Let's allow that person to actually feel sad about the loss here because we can't move on until that. But how rare is that, unfortunately? Unfortunately. I mean, we've, we, we, Deb, Deb and I sort of talk about this. This was certainly a big theme as we were writing this book. I don't know. I feel like somehow, somewhere along the way, we said feelings don't matter in business. And it's just a load of horse crap. It really is. It just is. It's just hopefully if you want people to bring all of their passion and their energy and themselves to work, then they're going to care deeply about it. And I think that that's what you want out of your people. And what comes along with that are emotions. And it's part of our brand. It's part of the squiggles and stuff that you'll see on the cover of our book is that those feelings, that's the messy part. It's so easy when we create policy that keeps people in line and procedures that they don't step out of, but that's not how humans are, right? People are complex and messy. And part of that comes with emotion uh, that somehow people think they shouldn't bring into the workplace. Sorry, I cried, right? People will say, and like, like crying just means that you have a really strong attachment to whatever it is that's happening there. There's a strong emotion sitting behind that that somehow we think we're not supposed to, we're not supposed to share in the workplace. And Kate and I are just big believers that, you know, that's part of humanity. Example, I was uh, talking with a head of HR one day who said um, she was preparing to go in to meet with her CEO and had to leave 50% of herself outside the door mm. because there wasn't enough room for all of her in the room with his ego. And I did not have good custody of my face in that moment. Um, and she said to me, like, you know, tell me what you're thinking. And I said, you know, I just don't even understand that. I don't understand how you can be in a partnership with someone and I'm going to hold that as a partnership that needs to be in place and leave 50% of yourself outside the door. Healthy relationships don't work that way. And so if there's some part of yourself that you don't feel you can bring into the workplace, what's that costing you? And what's that costing the organization? And if and, your team is feeling that way, what's that costing you as a leader? Right. How does that help? Um, and, you know, it goes back to the fourth chapter in the book, which is like taking responsibility for what you create. What are you creating when that happens? And is that what you want? Or is that an unintended effect? 
And as, as we talk about emotions and humanity, I mean, at the core of humanity, what makes humanity different than artificial intelligence or the robots or any of the rest of it? It's the emotion. It, it's those elements of our personhood that we're, we're bringing. And, you know, that, that effort to drive those things out, I understand it, right? There's that goes back to the fears that you talked about earlier, right? We have that need to, uh, I want to control the future, which is unpredictable and uncertain. So my way of doing that, I'm going to lock things down and get rid of all this messiness and all of that. Well, and you just told us what we lose when we succumb to that. What we gain, on the other hand, are the things that robots and computers can't do. So I, I know that you touch on this in the book, but if you were to encapsulate why is humanity so important? Why does humanity work better ultimately? In a nutshell, I think it's because we think it will make work more fulfilling. And if work is more fulfilling, then your people are going to feel better about the work that they're doing, who they're doing it with, who they get to be while they're doing it. When we looked up humanity, when we've named our company, when we started thinking about the book, we're like, what does it actually mean? Maybe we should start there, right? And one of the things that we really came to embrace is humanity is the interdependency of one another. Mm. We don't live on this world in isolation. No man, person is an island here. It isn't. As much as we might want to think, I don't need anybody else. You do. You depend on communities to bring you food. You, and we certainly learned a lot of that interdependency in the last 18 months, right? And so this idea that we exist on this planet, we exist in our communities, we exist in our workplace, in our families, interdependent of one another, gives us the cause to say, then when we are together, how do we really celebrate and bring out the very best of one another? And it has to start with you. So speaking of the naming of your company, mm. why don't you take this opportunity and then we're going to get into the, the, I've got one or two more questions for you, but why don't you take this opportunity to tell us where do we find you online, uh, connect with you? We'll get all your social media links and everything in the show notes, but where do we find more about your work and find the book? Um, you can find us on www.humanityworks.com. Um, there's a bunch of information there about the book. There's podcasts, there's news and media and articles and all that good stuff. You can find us on LinkedIn, both under Humanity Works and our individual names. You know, we're out there, we're out there doing the thing. <laughs> and our first article has been published by the Harvard Business Review, which was really a highlight moment. That's fantastic. Congratulations on that. Yeah. Well-deserved, well-deserved. All right, so let's, uh, as, as we're getting close to the end of our time here, um, you know, you, you've talked several different ways about owning your impact and the responsibility for uh, the, the effect that you're having, the unintended and intended, right? We wanna be aware and take responsibility. One of the things that you talk about in this chapter is that we have to let go of trying to be someone that we're not. And, all of the elements of personal responsibility, you know, I definitely resonated with them. And then this one stopped me in my tracks. I went, okay, talk to me about that. Yeah. So we actually very wholeheartedly believe that 
you are yourself when you are your most compelling and authentic, not trying to be somebody that you're not. And we think that, I think that so much of leadership is filled with, it has to look a certain way. You will not get that from this book. You will not get that from anything that Debbie and I do. Part of what we're always trying to do is bring out that eccentric, quirky, quiet, thoughtful person that you are, whatever variations of that exist. And each one of us is different and unique. And when we can stand in that place of being the kind of leader that we genuinely are without trying, we actually inspire other people to do the same thing. For me, as I was watching and participating in some of the uh, movements around social injustice and the conversations that come back into systemic roadblocks in organizations, to me, this is one of the high leverage places for organizations. If you want to create fuller representation and participation in your organization, um, get rid of, here are the 10 competencies of what leadership looks like and figure out how to unleash the most compelling qualities of your people and, uh, and make sure they're aligned to where you're going, but let that diversity of expression and representation show up in your leadership. Because there are so many beautiful ways to influence. And, and, and that doesn't mean that um, you're devoid of taking responsibility for the impact that you create. That's right. That's why this is a both and. Back this to, is a both right? and. This, this is, is a, a absolutely. We want you to know who you are when you're most compelling. But we say, you know, in that particular practice that you need to take responsibility for what you create. So if you're a little bit of a bull in a china shop or a lot of a bull in a china shop, right? That means you need to possibly clean up a mess that you just created, right? But it takes some awareness outside of yourself to see what it is you've created out there and then go and have those conversations. So responsibility is a big part of that particular practice. Mm, and that I creates accountability that. in an organization. I'm a big fan of that land in the end and the accountability, the personal responsibility, both for owning the best version of yourself and yeah. taking responsibility for the, whether they're unintended, whatever those consequences are. I love that. Right. You know, we skipped over, uh, and it's on me, we skipped over claiming values and, you know, the values is just such a word, you know, in, in our corporate lexicon and, and all that. But the way that you talked about it, you, you said something and that reminded me around here, we say, you don't always choose what you'll show up to, but you always choose how you'll show up. Love that. Or at least you have that choice available to you. You, yeah. you get to choose how you'll show up. And so I wonder if you would help us, because you had some real practical ways to approach knowing first, actually becoming aware of, and you mentioned this earlier, some people don't know what's valuable to them. How we go through that process, how do we know and claim those values? This is one of my favorite chapters because, you know, especially the work I see inside organizations, most people, right? The research will show, say that 85% of adults never develop out of a reactive place back to saboteurs, that reactive place that when something comes at you, that feels uncomfortable, scary, threatening, you go to that place to protect. And the way out of that is to understand 
what matters to you and why. And so in the book, there's a very practical, albeit uncomfortable exercise that asks you a basic question and then keeps pushing you to go underneath the meaning of that for you. We use language in this culture as a mask for things, right? And so if I say, I need, I need this job because I need to provide for, uh, because I need to make money. What's important to you about making money, right? And what will often come dug underneath there is a sense of stability, uh, is a sense of providing for their family, is a, right, the thing that matters is underneath the vocabulary that we use. And that's the exercise. Because when you land at the root of what matters to you, then you have a lot more freedom at how you move and express that. You get to be conscious about if that thing, if security is what matters to me, then how do I make choices about my life and the decisions that I want to make so that that thing remains intact, that I can bring that to life. Instead, we mask our, our intentions and our, and our values in lots of other, in lots of other things. And then we protect those, not knowing what's really underneath all that. So the claiming your values is about getting to that root. The other piece for me on this is sort of a sidebar that we don't talk about in the book, um, but we talk about in different trainings, is in most organizations, what we focus on is performance. What did you do? But what's very hard for people to claim is the impact that has. And, and when we look at work on professional progression, it's not just about what you do. It's about knowing why it matters. Absolutely. And this sort of has a sort of full circle effect for me, um, for people to become more conscious about what they do and why it matters, not just to the company, but make good use of every breath that you get to take, every beat of your heart. Why does it matter? Well, and there's a story that just keeps coming up throughout this entire interview that I have to share. It's actually in the book as well. But this is, this, the other place to mine for this is this exercise that's in the book that Deb's referring to, or your own experiences. When I was an account executive at a big advertising agency in New York, account executives, by the way, you're at the low end of the totem pole. You're very low down. And, um, and I was working with another colleague and we were, we'd gone to a corporate service day and this is back in the early nineties. And we, we were starting a program that would deliver meals to people that were homebound living with AIDS in the early part of that ep epidemic. And I'd gotten put onto a new business pitch with a very senior guy. He'd been in the advertising business for a long time. And I walked into the cafeteria and um, he called me over to his table and he was sitting at a table with 10 other advertising men executives, young and old. And he um, berated me in front of all of these people about this sign that was up at, we were advertising for volunteers for this program. And mm -hmm. I was, I was super young. I hadn't even been at the agency for a year. And I just, I, I was shaking, literally shaking. 
And I sat down with a friend of mine and I said, oh my God, this thing just happened. And they were like, you have to go tell HR. So I did. And I went into HR and I was like, this thing just happened. And she said to me, what do you want to do? And in that moment, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, I was, I, this, nothing had ever happened to me like this before. And I got really clear. I was like, I don't want him to ever say it and feel like he can talk to me like that again in front of all of those people. And, and the bigger, the bigger want was, I don't want him to feel like he can talk to anybody, anybody, not just me, but anybody. And she said, you have to go tell him that. So I did. I walked into his office. He was by himself. He was not grandstanding. It, it, the change in his whole demeanor could not have been more different. And I just said, you know, listen, I need to talk to you about what just happened in the cafeteria. And he was like, oh, really? Like what? Like he didn't know what it happened. <laughs> and I said, if you ever talk to me like that again, you know, I will file charges because that was that was illegal. That's not okay. And I don't want you ever to talk to me like that again. He didn't say anything. He said, fine. I have no idea if that changed him or not, but I knew in that moment, talk about claiming value. I knew that I did not want to work in an organization. I didn't, that was going to support that kind of behavior. And, and they really supported me through it. I'll, I'll never know what happened on his end, but from my end, that is what claiming value can look like. And it was terrifying. It was terrifying, but but something got triggered in me that I didn't even know existed until that moment. So that's another place for people mm -hmm. to look, you know, and, and, and be courageous and go there and claim the value that you want. When you're triggered, it usually is hitting some core value that you haven't sort of gave recognition to. Got that raw nerve that, that is there. And, you know, Kate, as you're saying, you don't know if it changed him, but you know, for a fact that it changed you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Powerful. Well, we have been talking with Kate and Debbie, the authors of this fantastic book, Humanity Works Better. I hope you have a sense of what is in this book for you. I mean, because we have literally just scratched the surface of each of these practices, taking a look at some different elements. Uh, we didn't dive deeper into daring not to know Kate's favorite, <laughs> but on one level we did because that curiosity and that willingness to say, I don't know, and I'm not gonna believe everything I think, or I'm going to, whatever you think, think the opposite, and, and the, the mining and surfacing, it all plays together. Mm -hmm. And all of these elements work together to help us bring our humanity to work to our leadership, to help us cultivate our team's humanity that they bring to the work that we're doing. Ultimately, as you said, so work's more fulfilling. And that's what we're doing here. I, Debbie, Kate, I can't tell you how meaningful this conversation has been for me personally. Forget the podcast and President Lutzker, any of that. Just me as a human being, this has been fulfilling. And so I really appreciate you being guests with us today. We appreciate well, it so much. Thanks it. for fun and easy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure having you. So, hey, that's Humanity Works Better. Go out, get the book, take the time. They have so many practical exercises that you can do to, to dive deeper and, and apply these principles and these practices to your leadership. I encourage you to do that and be the leader you'd want your boss to be.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.